This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. Well, who do I want, you know, for my purposes? Maybe Hakeem Jeffries or maybe conservative Democrat X. I want, no, no, no. I want George Santos. <laughs> I think that would be, uh, that, that's. Actually, George Santos already is Speaker of the House. He's telling <laughs> that's people. That's right. It's on, <laughs> it's on his resume. <laughs> Welcome to the Washington Post Opinions Podcast. I'm Perry Bacon. As you've probably heard, Kevin McCarthy was voted out of the speakership on Tuesday. McCarthy immediately announced he would not try to become speaker again. So now one of the most important jobs in Washington and all of government is open. I'm going to discuss McCarthy's removal and what comes next with my colleagues Jim Garrity and Dana Milbank. Hello, Perry Bacon. Perry, great to be with you. And ah, what a terribly slow news day. (laughs) I think the question I have is like, is it that McCarthy particularly was not suited for this role or... Kind of my take is that John Boehner was forced to help. Paul Ryan struggled as being Speaker. McCarthy barely won in January. That there's something about this group of House Republicans that is kind of unwranglable, unmanageable. So which is it, McCarthy or the group or a little bit of both? I'll start with um, Dana. Well, look, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is ever going to be remembered as a, a Daniel Webster or a Henry Clay or possibly even a Nancy Pelosi or a John Boehner. Uh, that said, you know, I, uh, I heard, uh, you know, a couple people coming out of the, the caucus meeting uh, last night, uh, Don Bacon, uh, reason, a relatively moderate Republican, uh, saying, I don't think anybody could have done it better. And that may be true, uh, because we are in this uh, point where that caucus uh, is ungovernable. Uh, and it seems to me the only way uh, out of this mess, if there is a way out of this mess, even this wouldn't be uh, foolproof, would be to try to have some cross-aisle consensus. Not, not a you know, power sharing, but at least some sort of changes in rules, uh, uh, committee, subpoena power, other things to actually give Democrats a voice. And then they would be working uh, in a coalition sense. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, what we've got now is, you know, if we're looking at Jim Jordan, if we're looking at Steve Scalise, these are people to the right of Kevin McCarthy who are going to be working within that same framework of trying to cobble together 218 votes in a caucus of 222 Republicans. And it seems to me that's just a fool's errand. You're going to be right back in a motion to vacate. Uh, and, you know, people uh, destabilizing the speaker uh, weeks later. It's not going to matter who is in that position unless you have somebody who's actually going to be able to uh, bring in enough Democrats to protect against the motion to vacate. Jim? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that Kevin McCarthy is the second coming of Winston Churchill and the best possible leader of all scenarios of House Republicans. You know, you could point to any of his, you could point to any other House Republicans and say, ah, maybe this guy's a little bit better at communication. Maybe this guy's a little bit better at negotiations. But there's no miracle worker out there. There's no guy who's going to be dramatically different. And a lot of the complaints, when you listen to the McCarthy critics in the House, the complaints are actually complaints about the circumstances Republicans are in. Right? Well, we don't, you know, well, you got a really bad deal. Okay, you have very little leverage. You have a very narrow House majority. You have a Democrat's control of the Senate. You have Joe Biden in the White House you'd very narrowly control one third of the process of spending in this country. That's, that's you know, not going to be able, you're not going to be able to get a lot of what you want. Any spending bill or really any legislation that's going to get onto the Joe Biden's desk has, be, has to be the kind of thing that's going to be enjoyed by Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, fairly conservative amongst Senate Democrats, 
Uh, Kirsten Cinema, now the Independent of Arizona. Uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. It's going to be centrist stuff. The, if you're a hardline conservative Republican, you're just not going to be pleased with what's going to come out of the legislative process right now. And that's because you don't have a, you don't have a majority. You don't have close to a majority. And you're going you know, so you can change the leader. But that's not really going to change those dynamics. And you're, as you know, as uh, Dana said, you're going to be pretty much in the same situation. I also would note, you look back at like the long history, or at least my adult life history, of uh, Republicans in the Senate. There were a lot of people who were like, you know, ah, Bob Mitchell, he's such a such an establishment squish. We need somebody tougher. We need somebody like Bob Dole. And then Bob Dole went, ah, Bob Dole, God, what a what a boring old geriatric type. We need somebody. We, we need a Southerner. We need old Wiley. We need Ted, Ted, Trent Lott. Ah, uh, Trent Lott is such a disappointment. We need somebody smarter, sharper. Ah, Bill Frist, he's a doctor. And, then, and you go through the Mitch McConnell, whoever's in charge of, this, of, of a, a caucus has to represent that whole caucus. And that includes the folks who are in swing districts. That includes the folks who are not going to vote, you know, uh, 100% with the ACU the way, you know, some folks would like. So he's got to represent everybody. He's got to protect the flank of some of his most vulnerable members. And it means he's going to have to compromise. And there are a whole bunch of people who just, like, they're, they, Matt Gates is the world, have this role in which, yeah, I'm a backbencher. But let me tell you, if I were in charge, I would tell Schumer and Biden what for. And I'd put those guys, they'd be begging for mercy. And they'd give me everything I want. And, and throw in a pony, too. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's the easiest role to play in it, politics. I, I, I think you're right. Jim and I, but I, 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 there's a number of House Republicans. I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's 30. Could be a little higher. It could be a, a little lower. Who just? It seems to me just aren't fundamentally aren't rational, and they believe okay, all all of what you said may be true, but if uh, we just don't budge and shut the government down or default on the debt ceiling, mm-hmm. everybody will have to come around to our point of view. So I don't know, and you know that's what you know what, what McCarthy called the burn it down uh, folks, or you know they call it the chaos uh, caucus. Um, I don't. What do you do about them? Um, you know how do you? How do you deal with that? I was going to say, they're not every, rational. every presidency, there is somebody in the Congress, some, you know, usually in the House, but you can make an argument that Ted Cruz played this role a couple years ago, mm. who are like, look, I know the last few government shutdowns haven't worked well for us as Republicans. And you know, the best case scenario for Republicans so far has been a pox on both your houses. The public gets mad at everybody. Usually they get a little bit more of the blame, sometimes a lot more of the blame. Um, and it's this situation where, but this time I know it's going to work out great. I know exactly the messaging that's going to convince the Americans that we're being reasonable. And it's those Democrats over there who are being extreme. And no matter how many times they step on the rake, no matter how many times Wiley Coyote doesn't catch the roadrunner, there's always some guy who's like, no, no, this time I figured it out. And they always think we got to go through a government shutdown again. Uh, we've had three really long ones. We had a bunch of little shorter ones, yeah. but... Uh, the only thing that saved Republicans is that usually they happen far enough from Election Day that they everybody's forgotten about them by the time they go to, to, to the polls in November. Is this about the I'm not sure that my mom or the average person that's listening to this podcast is following the House Republicans that closely. So is this a story about the Republicans and is Matt Gates kind of similar to Trump in a certain way? Is is it is this a story about the Republicans or the House Republicans? Those are different things. Uh, Dana. Well, I, that's a good question, uh, Perry. Um, it, it, I mean, it's both, I think. You know, I've been focusing on the House Republicans throughout this year, 
because they're in charge there. You know, I am concerned, I don't know if, if Jim would agree with me on this, that we've sort of, that there is a, a deeper problem uh, uh, in the Republican Party that has, you know, gotten to this point, you know, so many uh, cycles of, uh, of more extreme candidates, uh, so much, you know, sort of detachment uh, from reality and the uh, conspiracy theories uh, that I just, it seems to me that they're, they're sort of become fundamentally incapable of governing. Uh, it doesn't mean all of them. Uh, I don't think it even means most of them. It's like, you uh, you know, I was, uh, so there were 90 uh, who voted on Saturday against the uh, continuing resolution to shut the government down. Well, okay, out of, so that means out of, you know, that means what, there was, there's a, 132 who are, were not going to do that. Uh, but it just seems to me they've, you know, there have always been crazies in Republican and Democratic caucuses. It just seems to me that they have critical mass now. Uh, and I just don't, I just don't see how they can govern. Jim, I was going to say, I, I, the Venn diagram of my thinking and worldview will overlap at least some with Dana. The more the political scene becomes a circus, the more the candidates who choose to run are clowns. Hmm. Uh, the normal people want nothing to do with this. Normal, you know, people who are because so, your typical Republican, even back during the Tea Party days, was some person who'd made a small fortune at the small business. Uh, maybe you'd use like Ron Johnson as an example. Hadn't run before, but like they, they don't like what the work Congress is doing. They don't like what the Democratic president is doing. By golly, I'm, you know, my kids are out. Of, I paid for college. My kids are out of school. I'm ready to jump into politics and try to make the place better. Um, and now, you know, you see the Pat Toomey's of the world say, see ya, I'm out of here. I don't want to run for real. Rob Portman, you know, and you end up with folks who are more uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Bobert, folks who really look and sound like they, they like they'll settle for being a member of the House of Representatives, but they really want to be on next season of Dancing with the Stars. They really want to be on some reality show, and that they're going to be a celebrity and they're going to be famous, and that's what they really want out of life. And this governing thing, ah, oh God, there's there's work, there's all this paperwork and policy and stuff you got to keep track of. It's a lot more fun to be part of the circus. Um, so I think that's an element of this, and that's why you're getting. Uh, more and more of the crazy caucus or whatever you want to, however you want to characterize that. The other thing, um, yeah, this is mostly a House Republican story, but it's very strange the way that like the Republicans just had this like giant upheaval and Donald Trump was really a non-factor. And if he'd wanted to be, he could have been a factor. He could have come out and said, Kevin is terrific. He's always, and he said, you know, he says nice things about me. And if, if Donald Trump wanted to say, Kevin's not going anywhere, Matt Gates might have, maybe not Matt Gates, but I think a lot of House Republicans would have really been had some trepidation uh, of those eight. Or he could have said, I think Kevin's done terrible and it's time for him to, and then probably you would have seen a whole bunch of Republicans vote against him. And Trump didn't weigh in really. You know, he said some vague, I like both of them, right? He, he didn't take a side. Now, some of that might be he's busy with the trial. Some of that might be he's thinking about the presidential right. race. But I really genuinely think that like Kevin McCarthy is technically the establishment. He's the Speaker of the House, been around in Washington for a while. Uh, and Matt Gates is the bomb thrower. He's the populist. He's the angry guy who's the outsider. And Trump doesn't want to look like he's with the insiders. Trump mm -hmm. doesn't want to look like he's with this, you know. So I think the safe move for Trump was, you know, and normally either the, a Republican presidential candidate and a guy who's the leader of the party and who normally exerts great influence over the rest of the party. Like usually this person would weigh in and say, yes, this speaker should stay or no, this speaker should go. And Trump didn't do that. 
And, and it says something, I think something that maybe Republicans ought to heed about Trump's one-way uh, sense of loyalty. I mean, you know, except for, you know, what he came, what, what Kevin McCarthy did on, uh, on January 6th, which was actually the right thing to do, nobody has sucked up more, you know, my Kevin going down to Mar-a-Lago and mm. uh, uh, doing whatever uh, was asked of him and being very uh, assiduous in courting Trump. And I, I think it's very, I mean, uh, Trump was very much handled offs here i don't know why they're fighting um uh he i think he very easily could have uh, saved kevin mccarthy's speakership and this is a case of him being uh, of trump as usual sort of following the base uh more than uh leading the base but uh all of these republicans you know year after year now trying to win favor with donald trump it is not reciprocated got a two-parter here first it, um who do you want to be the speaker? Who would you like to be the speaker be? And then who do you think it will be? And my answers are, I think it'll end up being Scalise. He seems like the most logical person. I tend to think the person who's number two tends to get the number one job, if you ask. And then who would I like it to be? I think I'd like it to be Jim Jordan. And the reason, you know, obviously I don't agree with Jim Jordan ideologically on much, but each Paul Ryan, Bain, or McCarthy. There's always a question of, is this person a rhino? Is this person a sellout? Jim Jordan was the head of the Freedom Caucus. No one can question if he's very conservative. He is. So I'd like to see someone who actually is a hardline, very conservative person be in charge, and then no one has any questions. This guy believes this stuff. Can he get it done? So that's kind of what I, I expect, Scalise. I would like Jordan. What do you think, Jim? Um, I think that analysis is pretty sharp. The only thing that comes to mind is that Scalise was diagnosed with blood cancer uh, late this summer. He's looking, he's looking fine. And if, you know, guys survived a shooting, if there's anybody who can get through this with flying colors, it's probably Steve Scalise. I do think it's fair to ask, if you're the House Republicans and you've just been through this tumult, do you want the new speaker to be a guy who's going through chemotherapy? Um, you know, could be fine. Uh, maybe everybody will kind of shrug and say he seems fine and goes over this. I think it's a complication. I have no idea who it will be. If you know, I think you're right, Scalise is most likely. Who do I want? I'm not going to take sides. I don't, as I said, I don't see enormous difference among them as in terms of negotiating or communication skills. So, um, I think I'll go with uh, Jim Jordan's jacket. Uh, you don't see it much, but whenever it shows up, it's an important occasion, <laughs> Dana. Well, who do I want, you know, for my purposes? Maybe Hakeem Jeffries I, or maybe conservative I, Democrat X, I want, too. No, no, no. I want George Santos. I think that would be, uh, that, that's... Actually, George Santos already is Speaker of the House. He's telling <laughs> that's you right. It's, on, it's on his resume. And if I can't have George Santos, I would love to see Tom Cole. I think he's just about the nicest man in the House of Representatives, the Rules Committee chairman. But of course, uh, for for that reason... He's he, a Republican from Oklahoma for the listeners. He's sort of yes, a more moderate and or he, traditional I don't even know he's moderate, traditional conservative. He yeah. won't, but he, uh, he won't be getting the job either. But you know, he smokes a cigar. It would just be a classic, you know, central casting uh, for speaker um uh i i am concerned i i think uh, about uh, uh, scalise's health uh and i think i assume i mean obviously it's up to the, the republicans in his caucus but certainly they'd want to know more about uh he says he feels fine you know is he is it just a matter of chemotherapy does he need to get a you know a stem cell transplant or something more uh, dramatic than that. That that would presumably affect their decision. I, it's a, that's a the Jim Jordan case uh, uh, would seem to make sense that they couldn't possibly call him a squish. But 
I suspect uh, if he does get the job in a few weeks, they will be calling Jim Jordan a squish uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and a yeah. rhino. So I imagine that he, he went establishment. Too. He sold out. He's changed. Yeah, yeah you'll get that. Yeah. Right. I mean, people have even called uh, Mar- Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene a, a turncoat uh, for being uh, too supportive of Kevin McCarthy. So I, I you know, I, I, I think. Uh, either no matter what happens, I think we probably end up right back here uh, in a few months. If they're not actually vacating the chair, they're just making it so uh, that it doesn't really matter who the speaker is. They just can't control anything. So last question. So I'm of two minds what the Democrats did. On the one hand, clearly McCarthy was not the world's greatest speaker, and he did not reach out to them very much or offer them much. So vote him out. Why not? On the other hand, this is causing more disarray in Washington, one, and McCarthy was sort of a known quantity, and you might end up with someone sort of more conservative, even less good at the job. So I'm not sure how I felt about all the Democrats jumping in and voting to, uh, to vacate and to remove him. So I'm thinking through that myself. But I'll be curious what you guys think about what the Democrats did and what they sort of should do now going forward. I'll start with... Oof. So everyone can know that the entire the national oh, emergency alert system it. is being tested at this moment. Yeah, everyone in the country. Yeah, that was the Washington Post alert system. Tested. Tested. This, this, was Jamal, this was Jamal Bowen, I think. Yeah. Um, which, by the he way, uh, this would be a really great time for North Korea to launch some nukes because <laughs> no one would believe it because we think it's all a test of the emergency broadcast system. Don't do it, North Korea. Um, uh, what sh- what did you make of what the Democrats did in terms of voting to remove McCarthy? And then what do you think they should do now? Dana. Uh, look, I don't. I don't think Kevin McCarthy left Democrats with a choice there. He very easily could have gotten the seven or whatever Democrats uh, he needed. Uh, you know, a guy like uh, Jared uh, Golden up in Maine. He's. I mean, his statement said, "I. I he's given me nothing to show the uh, to show my constituents." Uh, uh, he just wasn't willing to give them that. So I think he left no choice but to. Uh, react the way they did, just to say, I'm going to stiff you and you should vote for me anyway for the good of the institution. Uh, I, you know, I, I just don't see how that works. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, as, as Jim McGovern, the ranking Democrat on the Rules Committee said, he's not a cheap date. You've got, you know, if you want to have bipartisanship, you actually have to make a gesture uh, in that direction. And so now what they should they do, you think, they in terms should, of this process? They, well, it's not it's not up to them unless they're being offered some sort of, uh, you know, power sharing in terms of, you know, representation on committees, uh, some ability to get their uh, legislation and, or amendments uh, heard on the floor. I mean, there are various concrete things that could be written into the rules. Uh, uh, but if they're completely stiffed again, I mean, why would you why go through? Uh, why would anybody uh, support them? Jim. So. My colleague, Dan McLaughlin, had said, Democrats do not have responsibility for the situation. This is all, you know, borne out by Republican infighting, but they do have agency. The longer this drags on, the more I think you might see Democrats saying, ha, maybe this did not work out the way we hoped because now we've, you know, our ability to get anything done is dependent upon House Republicans' ability to come together and nominate somebody, and we don't know how long that's going to take. Um, So it's conceivable. Um... I, and again, like if you think of the House Freedom Caucus or all these guys as uh, one step removed from January 6th rioters, 
or in some cases, maybe the same guys, um, that you basically, like, why would you do anything to empower them? Why would you do anything to give them greater leverage over the process? Uh, McCarthy, you know, certainly isn't your best friend. He's going to frustrate you, but, you know, you know what you're dealing with. You managed to work out a debt ceiling deal. You managed to work out uh, the initial continuing resolution. Why do that? And as for McCarthy not offer, I think McCarthy genuinely believed that, you know, enough Democrats would say, eh, we don't want to go through this headache. I think he believed that not many members of his own caucus would want to go through this headache of a process. And I think, you know, from the way he sounded this morning, doesn't seem all that regretful. He seems he's relaxed. It's he like, seems he's very, the happiest you know, man in the right, world. <laughs> it's your problem, everybody. You're, you know, you're, you miss me already. You know, that sense of uh, is your, now, now they're your problem. And I, look, he says he doesn't want to do it again. It doesn't seem crazy to me that all these other guys run and nobody can get 218 votes out of the House Republicans. And they kind of are like, ah, you know, Kevin, what you doing these days? You, you sure you don't want to come back? And, and, you know, so we end up, you know, it's a bit like um, True Detective. Time is a flat circle. Everything that's ever happened before is going to happen again and again and again. So Jim is predicting, I'm joking a little bit, but you think there's not going to be a lot of takers for this job is what you're getting at. Well, they'll be interested. The question is, out of 223 House Republicans, can you get 218 to vote for you? Or are there, you know, six holdouts who will say, no, I don't like that guy. I'm not going to, you know, and gum up the works. And based on what we saw this week, that doesn't seem like a crazy scenario. And on that very happy, optimistic note, we'll close this down. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. Dana, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Um, I'm Perry Bacon. I'm one of the opinion writers here at The Post. Thanks for listening to this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.